I went into the hospital in the intensive care unit. So if Mark Meadows knew that somebody that I was sitting across from for four days had popped a positive test, he, as the White House chief of staff, put aside the president for a second. Obviously, the president, as my friend, should have looked at me and told me that. That's obvious. But I think what's less obvious is that Mark Meadows saved this for his book, spoke about so the fact that So did this confirm for you that you did, in fact, get it for the president? Oh, I think it's undeniable. That's former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie explaining how he felt when he learned just days ago that President Trump had tested positive for COVID on the first day of debate prep last year, and no one told him. Margaret, I was as close to him as you and I are to each other right now. I was playing Joe Biden, and we had some very spirited disagreements. Saliva was flying back and forth. I'm Margaret Hoover. This is the Firing Line Podcast. I spoke to Governor Christie in New Jersey this week about these new COVID revelations and his new book, Republican Rescue. Why did we lose in 2020? We lost in 2020 because it was a personal rejection of Donald Trump. He says the truth-denying and wild conspiracy claims must stop, including Trump's election fraud lies. That's a conspiracy theory that is provably wrong. I asked him why he spares Tucker Carlson in his book and the misinformation that he spreads on Fox News, given that his book is about conspiracy theories. Right now, he is one of the chief promulgators of conspiracy theorists on and, our side, and probably one of the most effective. Well, and whoever wants to write a book about Tucker, they can go ahead and write a book about well, Tucker. you wrote a book about conspiracy theories. Yeah. When it comes to 2024, Christie isn't willing to rule out supporting Trump. Look, I'm a Catholic who believes in redemption, and I think anybody can change if they decide they want to. But is this all really because Christie is planning to run again himself? You said in your last interview with me that you were not finished yet. I am not. If Trump ran, would you be willing to run against him? If I decided to run for president, I wouldn't care who the hell else is in the race. Governor Chris Christie, welcome back to Firing Line. Happy to be back, Margaret. Thanks. Your new book, Republican Rescue, Saving the Party from Truth Deniers, Conspiracy Theorists, and the Dangerous Policies of Joe Biden. First, why does a Republican Party need to be rescued? Because 2018 to 2020 was our worst two years since the early 30s. Um, we lost the House. We lost the Senate. I noticed you didn't say since Herbert Hoover was president. Well, I'm trying to be respectful, Margaret. Um, <laughs> House, the Senate, the White House in two years. It's the only two times it's happened in Republican Party history. It was 1930 to 32 and 2018 to 2020. And what happened in 30 to 32 was Democrats then held the White House for 28 of the next 36 years. Our country cannot afford that kind of drought from a viable two-party system. And so to me, when you look at why we lost, we need to now move forward and put forward a new set of policies and ideas um, that acknowledge why we lost in 2020 and start to appeal to the voters that we lost in those years um, to get them back into the fold. Why did we lose in 2020? We lost in 2020 because it was a personal rejection of Donald Trump. But we have spent all the time since the 2020 election as a party, or at least a lot of it, talking about the 2020 election, whether it was stolen or not, and a number of other conspiracy theories that surround that. And, and I thought it's really important for us to not look backwards. Every election is about tomorrow, not about yesterday. And if you run on yesterday, you're going to lose. And we're going to lose if we continue to talk about 2020. There are Republicans right now who will say the party doesn't need to be rescued if you just look at the momentum that the House of Representatives has going into the 2022 cycle. Uh, Kevin McCarthy is 
uh, feels that he's all but assured to be the next Speaker of the House. Uh, We just had an upset win in Virginia, where the governor, Glenn Youngkin, won quite handily. There are Republicans who would critique the necessity of rescuing the Republican Party because they'd say things are looking really good. The momentum is in the Republican direction right now. Well, I think both things can exist at the same time. That momentum has been created not by us, but by the Democrats. Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, and the and the congressional Democrats have created momentum for us. And when you look at what Glenn Youngkin did, you think about Glenn's campaign, cut the grocery tax, get parents back into their children's education, and create jobs in Virginia. None of that has anything to do with the election being stolen in 2020 or any conspiracy theory around it. It's kitchen table issues that Virginians cared about. So Youngkin, I think, showed, again, the power of what we talk about in the book, which is talk about what voters care about, lay out a right-of-center vision of that, and you're going to win back suburban voters. Um, So right now, we're winning because the other guys are losing. And this is kind of the part of the argument I made to Donald Trump back in 2017. I said to him, you didn't win the election. Hillary Clinton lost it. Now it's your opportunity to make yourself a winner because 2020 will be about you. It's always about the incumbent. And Hillary was seen as the incumbent in that race. So I think we just look at what's happened here. You can have some positive momentum, which we appreciate. Thank you to the Democrats. But if we count on just that to win in 2022, we won't. You've been friends with him for 20 years. Correct. Uh, in, In the book, you write, quote, we have been friends for 20 years and we still are friends, but friends have disagreements. So where's your friendship stand with him right now? Well, he's not talking to me right now. He's so that means it's not in a good place? Not in a good place at the moment. He's unhappy that I am saying in the book that the election wasn't stolen. But I think I prove in the book by provable facts that it was not stolen. And he knows that. He knows those facts. And he, he just can't accept the fact that he lost. And, and listen, I've won elections and I've lost elections. Winning is much better. And losing is always intensely personal. But you get into this business, that's what you have to be ready for. When you say he's my friend, can you help me understand what you mean by that? I mean that over the last 20 years, we have developed a friendship, a relationship that has gone in a lot of different directions. We would go out to dinner frequently with our spouses, with his girlfriend then in the beginning, Melania, and then then ultimately Mary Pat and I went to his wedding. He supported me for governor. And he would do very thoughtful things at times. He'd see good articles about me in the paper. He'd literally rip them out of the paper, write a note on them, um, and send them to me. So were we best friends? No. But were we friends and friendly? Yes. Um, And really, that only started to change even a little when we ran against each other in uh, 2015 and 2016. Um, And then the, the, the relationship continued to evolve over the time he was president. He offered me a number of jobs that I turned down. Um, and I think that probably didn't, you know, make him too happy. Uh, you know, he's angry when you don't agree with him. And I don't agree with him on this and a number of other things um, that we've disagreed with over time. I've always been willing to say that both privately to him and publicly. And I think that's what friends do. Um, but right now we're in a um, we're in a down, a down moment. Um, but one thing I've learned about Donald Trump over the years is that may last and it may not. The book, of course. Saving the Party from Truth Deniers, Conspiracy Theorists, and the Dangerous Policies of Joe Biden. Who are the truth deniers and the conspiracy theorists that you're concerned about right now? Well, there's a few. So, like, 
on the, the QAnon side of things. You know, someone like Marjorie Taylor Greene, and I write about her pretty extensively in the book. So that's, you know, that's one person. Obviously, one of them is the, is the former president because he's the one talking about the election being stolen. That's a conspiracy theory that is provably wrong. You are a prosecutor. Mm-hmm. And you say there is simply no evidence to support the claims of widespread fraud. You go through every single claim in detail in the book. Have you had the experience of having had somebody read the book whose mind you've changed? Yeah, a number of people already. And not only that, but I test ran some of these things while I was writing the book to people who believe the other side. And Tell me more about that. Well, so like you would start to go through, like they'd say, oh, it got stolen. Pennsylvania got stolen from him in Philadelphia. Well, did you know that he got 2% more of the vote in Philadelphia in 2020 than he got in 2016, and that Joe Biden actually got 1% less of the vote in Philadelphia than Hillary Clinton did in 2016. That's a pretty ineffective way to steal an election statewide by letting the person you're trying to steal it from get 2% more, and the person you're trying to steal it for to get 1% less. And when I would say that to someone, they would look at me and go, I didn't know that. And no one has shown me that there was any number of fraudulent votes that came close to being able to swing those states. And then when you talk about the election itself, Margaret, remember, as you know, you'd have to change five states to change the result. So we don't have proof that one state was changed by fraud, let alone five. Why are we seeing so many conspiracy theories now? I think for a few reasons. There's anger and division in the country. So people are always looking for an explanation that supports their point of view. Secondly, I think there's been a vacuum of people pushing back on it that are within our own party. So if you have Democrats say, oh, this is untrue, people go, well, those are Democrats and we don't believe them. That's why I wrote the book. The book is to provide cover for other Republicans to say, it's okay, you can say it, you know it's true, and you can say it, it's all right. And in fact, you need to say it because our own party needs to hear from people within the party that this stuff is wrong. I mean, we had this big recount in Arizona that was run by Republicans, and Biden wound up with more votes after the recount than he did before. Does rescuing the Republican Party mean severing ties with Donald Trump or cutting out Donald Trump? Oh, the voters can do that. I, I think that what it means is focusing on the things that really matter. And so if the Republican Party wants to be relevant going forward, If we spend 2022 and 2024 trying to relitigate the 2020 election, which is what I suspect, given what he's saying every day, what Donald Trump wants to do, we're going to lose again. Like we lost in 2020, we lost. You don't spend a lot of time in the book on conspiracy theories on the left. You sort of spend more time on conspiracy theories on the right. Well, I'm trying to save my party. Let Let someone on the Democratic side write about their conspiracy theories. Look, They have things to clean up in their own house as well. Not my job at the moment. I'm worried about my party. Well, what you did in the book is point out that there's a history of people on the right standing up to conspiracy theories on the right. And you point to William F. Buckley Jr. and Ronald Reagan and Barry Goldwater to a certain extent. And you get into that history. Um, Given that this program is a descendant of William F. Buckley Jr.'s firing line, I want to show you a clip of William F. Buckley Jr. talking about extremism, talking about the John Birch Society and how that group trafficked in anti-communist conspiracy theories. Take a look at this. What is, in my judgment, wrong with John Birch Society is its analysis, its analysis of what it is that has caused uh, the diminution of freedom in our century. 
uh, is, in my judgment, profoundly wrong and profoundly misleading. So it's not its objectives, but rather its analysis that uh, I find intolerable. In your book, you describe the Birchers as, quote, at least as wacky as the truth deniers and conspiracy propagandists of today. And, and you also give a lot of credit to Buckley for standing up to them. Why are there so few elected conservatives in Congress who are willing to stand up to the conspiracy theorists? They're afraid. Look, you know, Margaret, that in today's politics, unfortunately, lots of decisions are made by folks based on fear. What are they afraid of? They're, they're afraid of, in a very red district, being primaried from the right with opposition to them being supplied by Donald Trump. They never have to worry about losing a general election in most of these districts because they're so gerrymandered. Um, so they worry about a primary and they just want to protect their own flank. And so they, what you find with most folks in the House is they don't say anything about it. They just don't want to talk about it. And, and they ignore it. Buckley and Reagan, by that clip in 1966, had seen the Republican Party go into the thrall of the John Birch Society, nominate Barry Goldwater in 1964, and they said, this is a party that needs to change path. And because of what I think, in large part, what Buckley and Reagan did in redefining conservatism, you had us as Republicans, you know, winning five of the next six presidential elections and redefine conservatism for 50 years. So that's the same kind of effort we need now. There's not a clear definition of what conservatism means anymore in this country, and we need to be talking about it. So one of the things that's different when Buckley stood up to the Birchers is that there were less media outlets and there didn't exist a conservative media ecosystem. And frankly, there didn't exist a partisan media ecosystem in the same way. I write in the book about this, that, that media, both traditional media and social media, have changed the way we discuss this and make it harder for us to bring the country together. Um, harder than it was in Buckley and Reagan's time in the mid-60s for certain. So yeah, we face greater challenges, but it also gives us greater opportunities too, because we do have many more outlets to be able to get to people on than they did. And so you just have to be persistent. I mean, part of what this book is about, it's not an end, it's a beginning. It's the start of this conversation that we need to have. Um, let me ask you about a recent interview on MSNBC which asked you about your omission of Fox News uh, as a purveyor of conspiracy theories. You really don't take on Fox News. Why not? During that exchange, you said you didn't watch Tucker Carlson. I don't. So we put together a few clips. Let me show you a few clips of what Tucker Carlson's been saying on his show. Okay. Strangely, some of the key people who participated on January 6th have not been charged. Why is that? You know why. They were almost certainly working for the FBI. So FBI operatives were organizing the attack on the Capitol on January 6th, according to government documents. If vaccines work, why are vaccinated people still banned from living normal lives? Honestly, what's the answer to that? It doesn't make any sense at all. If the vaccine is effective, there is no reason for people who have received the vaccine to wear masks or avoid physical contact. So maybe it doesn't work and they're simply not telling you that. Now the committee has decided to shut down one of the most popular journalists on the right, Alex Jones. Yes, journalist. 
Jones is often mocked for his flamboyance, but the truth is he has been a far better guide to reality in recent years. In other words, a far better journalist than, say, NBC News national security correspondent Ken Delanian or Margaret Brennan of CBS. Okay, I have to say, the FBI did not organize the attack against the Capitol. COVID vaccines are highly effective. Alex Jones, the guy who says Hillary Clinton personally murdered children, is not a better guide to reality or to journalism than NBC or CBS. So I guess my question for you, Governor, is given that you wrote in the book, quote, we Republicans need to discredit and marginalize the conspiracy theorists and truth deniers, should you have taken a closer look at what Tucker was saying? No, that's not what the book was about. Yes, it was about shutting down the conspiracy theorists on our oh, side. No, look, the book was not about critiquing each media outlet. No, 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 I didn't say did. media outlet. I said Tucker. Right now, he is one of the chief promulgators of conspiracy theorists on and, our side, and probably one of the most effective. Well, and whoever wants to write a book about Tucker, they can go ahead and write a book about Tucker. But you Tucker. wrote a book about conspiracy theories. Yeah, and I <laughs> on did. On the right. I did. And, and, and by the way, my view on it is that the people that I wrote about are the people who create those conspiracy theories and the people who expand upon them if Tucker's Who wrong. blow them through a bullhorn? Yeah, look. To three million people per night? By the way, if that's what he's doing, then he's going to ultimately be held accountable for that. But, but you're not going to hold him accountable for I, it? I, I'm not going to. That's not what the book was about. Tucker Carlson is not, to me, the leading person to be talking about regarding any of the theories that I talked about, whether it was birtherism or the Pizzagate or QAnon or the election lies. I don't understand. I have to tell you the truth. I, I didn't understand this about Nicole. And quite frankly, I don't understand this line of questioning from you at the moment for this purpose. If people, if, if, if you or someone else is really thinking that Tucker Carlson is that big a problem, then go and talk about it. I wrote a book. I made choices of who I wanted to talk about, who I didn't. Nicole tries to make it sound like I can't say anything bad about Fox News, which is ridiculous. And that's not why I didn't do it. I didn't do it because I focused on the things that I thought were the biggest problems. It just problems. seems like an inconsistency that I want to do I explore with you. But I don't think it's the big, I don't, I don't, first of all, I don't think it's an inconsistency. And secondly, I don't think it's anywhere near the biggest problem in our party. And he, well, here's- Nowhere near it. Here, what it, what it, here's the, the challenge is that by missing something that seems so glaringly obvious, it, it opens you up to criticism that you left him out for some other open, reason. I'm going to be open to criticism no matter what. I don't really care. I, I don't. So I want to tell you, I don't care yeah. because. But then because it's people think, what's he up to? Is it because he wants to be in Tucker's favor? Because he wants to be on I've Fox never, News? Let, let is let it I don't think being in Tucker's favor is saying publicly you don't watch his show. That's the first thing. I think most people who are on TV want to be watched. Secondly, in all the years Tucker's been on, I've never been a guest on his show. So if I'm attempting to curry favor with somebody, you would think that you'd be a guest on their show once. So did you leave so, him out because you didn't want to bring attention to him? No, I left him out because I didn't think it was nearly as important as all the other things I was writing about. Fair. And so to me, you say it's glaringly obvious. I didn't find it to be glaringly obvious. And that's the beauty of this country. Everybody gets to decide what Fair they enough. think is glaringly obvious or not. I mean, look, this is the media making themselves bigger than they are. Tucker Carlson, Tucker Carlson, is nowhere near as important as the president of the United States. He's nowhere near as important as Marjorie Taylor Greene, who's an elected official in this country in the United States House of Representatives. Okay, I wanna ask you about COVID. Okay. You spent a week in intensive care uh, battling COVID, and you wrote in your book that it was touch and go. 
for parts. Could have gone either way. Yeah, first couple of days. So I'm glad you made a full recovery. Me too. You tested positive three days after the presidential debate between Donald Trump and Joe Biden. And you had been with the president for four days prior to the debate, preparing him for the debate, starting on September 26th. Correct. According to Donald Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows, in his new book, Trump tested positive for COVID on September 26th, six days before he revealed that he had been diagnosed with COVID. Um, You said that your wife, Mary Pat, and you had a, a, quote, interesting reaction when you learned this uh, from Mark Meadows' book. What was that reaction? I can't believe Mark Meadows didn't tell me. I mean, you know. You didn't think Trump would have told you? Well, that's obvious, of course. Trump should have told all of us. But that Mark knew. That Mark knew too. And Mark should have said to all of us, hey, the president tested positive for COVID. We're having another test. And then the next test came back negative from what he reported. He had an obligation to tell us, to tell us that, hey, he tested positive. I would have worn a mask if I knew that. We knew everybody in that room except for the president was getting tested every day. We didn't know what the president's testing regimen was. So if Mark Meadows knew that somebody that I was sitting across from for four days had popped a positive test, he, as the White House chief of staff, put aside the president for a second. Obviously, the president, as my friend, should have looked at me and told me that. That's obvious. But I think what's less obvious is that Mark Meadows saved this for his book. Yeah. He saved it for a book. He didn't tell us. I I went into the hospital in the intensive care unit. He didn't call and tell me. Um, So I think that's inexcusable. You you had always suspected that you got it from the president. Is that right? Well, the only reason I'd suspected it was because he was the only person who I didn't know his testing regimen. That was, I was in close contact with all the other people. We spoke about. So, the fact did this that confirm for you that you did, in fact, get it for the president? Oh, I or? think it's undeniable. And Margaret, I was as close to him as you and I are to each other right now. I was playing Joe Biden. I was sitting right across from him, and we had some very spirited disagreements. Which you write about in the book during the during the debate prep. So, so saliva was flying back and forth between the two of us. COVID particles were going everywhere. As it turned out, I didn't know that because I didn't have any COVID particles. And the reason I know is because I was tested every day before I went in. And by the way, six of the seven of us in that room got it. Yeah. Hope, Hicks, Bill Stepien, Kellyanne Conway, me, um, uh, Stephen Miller, and Donald Trump all wound up with COVID in that room. It just so strikes me, Governor, that this man knowingly exposed you and the others in that room to coronavirus and then went and met with Gold Star families and was exposing them potentially, but that you still call him your friend. Look, that's a historical reference where obviously, as I just told you, yeah, not we're talking, not friendly but, at the okay. moment. Um, but and, and remember, you know, we're sitting here two or three days after I found out about the Meadows book. So it takes a little while to process all this, but what? But I'm not, I'm not trying to evade it. Like, look, he had an obligation to tell me, and so did Meadows. And by the way, so did the White House physician. But and it sounds like you actually hold him to a lower standard than you no, hold Mark Meadows. No, I don't hold him. No, I'm not saying 
I'm saying there's no debate. Donald Trump should have told me. Well, you heard from Donald Trump when you were in the hospital. I did. He called me right in the about hospital. It. He was in Walter Reed at the same time. And it's interesting because part of Meadows' book talks about how sick Donald Trump was. And I could tell you that that's absolutely accurate. You like, could tell how sick he oh, was on the he, phone. He, he was having trouble breathing. Mm-hmm. Um, he was very hoarse. Mm-hmm. And he sounded very, you know, to use the term he used for, for Jeb Bush, he sounded very low energy. Recount the story you tell in the book. What well, did he say to you? He called me and he asked how I was doing. And I, and I said, not well. I felt really bad. This was the first night I was in the hospital, Saturday night. And he, he started off by talking about how did two tough guys like us get this? You know, we're so tough. We're the toughest guys in America. How did we get this? I said, I don't know, Mr. President. And then he said to me, you don't think you got it for me, do you? And so I said to him, look, Mr. President, I have no idea. There were seven of us in the room. Hope has it. I said, Melania has it now. I said, Bill Stepien and Kellyanne Conway have it. I heard from them. I said, so I don't know who I got it from. And he kind of paused and he said, but I mean, you're not going to tell the press that I gave it to you. And I just stopped and I said, well, I said, I would never do that because I don't know that I got it from you. So why would I ever do that? And he said, oh, good. Okay. Well, look, feel better. And that was the end of the conversation. And I didn't hear from him again um, during my time in the hospital. So how do you understand his phone call now, knowing what you know now? Well, now I know that he was, he, he at least feared that he may have given it to me. Because he... He had popped a positive test. Do you think he was concerned about you? Or just oh, yeah. concerned about what you would say? Both. I mean, look, I think he didn't, he didn't want me to be sick and he certainly didn't want me to, to die. I mean, you know, no, I think he was concerned about me. I think phone calls can have dual purposes. You know, so do I think he was concerned about me? Absolutely. I think he was concerned about me. Do I think he was concerned about what I'd say to the press about how I got it, you know, a month before the election? Yeah, I think he was concerned about that too. Um, And uh, now I understand why. I never could understand why he was so concerned about it, except for a general paranoia. Policy. The third part of your book focuses on policy, winning again. You lay out your own experiences as a Republican governor, a two-term Republican governor in a blue state, uh, on issues like the economy, education, policing, police reform, and show how Republicans can be successful with a, a new Republican agenda. Uh, the Republican rescue agenda, shall we, shall we sure. call it? <laughs> sure. um, how can you refocus Republican messaging on policy ideas? By doing it. Like we're just talking about it. And I really believe that that's our job. Our job is to go out there and convince people that the ideas we have, the things we want to do are better than what's being done now or better than what may even think should be done. And so I think the only way to do this, Margaret, is to get engaged in it and talk about it, which is why I wrote the book, is to say to people, look, you may not agree with the stuff I'm saying. You may have other ideas that I don't mention, or you may have a different twist on the ideas that that I put out there. But let's start talking about that. Let's stop talking about QAnon. Let's stop talking about election stuff. Because Donald Trump didn't support some mainstream conservative policies that have been part of the modern American conservative movement really since the Reagan era, and you ran in 2016, partly making the case that we really have to tackle entitlement spending and Social Security reform. Do you still believe that? I do. Because Trump decidedly ran against that. I mean, he was not for that at all. Well, he flat out told me, you know, we had a conversation during a commercial break on the debate stage one time after I had come out with my plan on Social Security 
Medicare, Medicaid reform. And he said to me, man, he goes, that's really good stuff. He goes, I'm not going to be for it. He said, because people don't like you to take stuff away from them. He said, but it's really smart stuff. So he just made a cynical political judgment. Not that he didn't recognize that it was good. He should be a Democrat. He should. Well, look, my point is, I think we're now seeing the ramifications of that because when we got away from our fiscally conservative message, we gave permission for crazy out-of-control spending. And we did that during the Trump era. Now that the Democrats are in, they're taking it to the next level, and we lack the credibility to be able to say no. Because every time they say that, they go, well, what about the deficits that you ran up during the Trump years? You weren't complaining then. And so that's the damage that is done by that one. Now, there's some issues where I think he changed course a little bit, and I think it made some sense. Like, on trade, I think, you know, we do need to get smarter about how we deal with that and having American manufacturing here as a national security issue in addition to an economic issue. So I don't disagree with all of the things that he did that are outside the normal conservative doctrine. But I also think he got so much credit for some of the stuff. Like, you know, he wasn't tough on China. I mean, that new trade deal with China was not anything all that different than what we had before from my examination of it. And secondly, there was no greater um, Xi cheerleader at the beginning of COVID than Donald Trump. So I think that part of what we need to do as we change to the next iteration of what the Republican Party will be, which has happened all the time since 1860, right, is to be honest about what we did well before and what we did poorly before. And we did a bad job on fiscal issues um, from a governmental spending perspective. And we have to do better because it will never out-Democrat the Democrats as they're now showing us. Whatever we can spend, they can spend more. So that's not the way we're going to win elections. There are some here at home who actually worry that the only way the United States will unravel is if we're the authors of our own demise. Um, There is a cover story in The Atlantic this week by Bart Gelman in which he writes, this is a quote, Donald Trump came closer than anyone thought he could to toppling a free election a year ago. He is preparing in plain view to do it again, and his position is growing stronger. Now, Trump is signaling to everyone that he's going to run again. He's signaling that to his supporters. He can't say it because it will trigger campaign finance laws and election laws, but he's indicating that he's going to run again. And I wonder, because you've known him for so long, do you have any reason to doubt him? Oh, I don't think he's made any decision yet at all. But do you have any reason to doubt that when he says, for example, you know, I've made a decision, I can't tell you yet, but you're going to like it. I have every reason to doubt him. Why? Oh, I don't know, because he hasn't always been completely candid with us in the past. I don't know what he's going to do. What I'm confident he will do is what he thinks is in his best interest. You wrote in this book um, that Trump caused the insurrection, that he bears personal responsibility for what his violent supporters did to the Capitol. And you also wrote that he behaved in ways that no president should behave. Correct. Do you still believe that? Oh, absolutely, as it applies to everything he did from election night forward. So does that mean that you won't support him again if he runs? Look, I'm just not going to get into this, Margaret. Why? Because because this is the trap that everybody... But this is not a trap. This is a straightforward question. No, it's a a game that everybody wants to play about. Elections in this country are about choices, okay? If Bernie Sanders... just, Just hear me out. 
if Bernie Sanders is the Democratic nominee for president, if Elizabeth Warren is the Democratic nominee for president, I cannot vote for a socialist for president of the United States. But I can understand that argument prior to January 6th. I know you can, I, and, and you don't agree with it. No, no, you no, have but, every but right the, not to agree with it, but that's but, my position. But so you, so the, a man who caused an insurrection, who bears responsibility for the violent supporters at the Capitol, and who behaved in ways no president should behave as somebody you could still support against Bernie Sanders? I could not vote for Bernie Sanders. I just couldn't. So you won't eliminate the, the possibility of supporting not, Donald Trump in the future? I'm not going to, I'm just not going to make the decision now. I will not eliminate the possibility okay. of anything going forward because I don't know what my choices are going to be. And, and this is a game that everybody wants to play, and I'm not going to play it. What I'm trying to do is help change a party and change a country. But can and we change can, a party in a country if we still are willing to support a man whose supporters violently attacked the Capitol and we, who behaved beneath the press? Can we do all the things you want to do by, if we, in one scenario, we'll could continue to support Donald Trump? We'll see. We'll see if we can. I don't know the answer to that question, and neither do you. Given the the quite damning things you've said about the president's behavior in office, my question is, can you have a Republican rescue if Donald Trump is the president again? It, it depends on whether Donald Trump continues to conduct himself the way he is now or whether he changes. And you can't tell me whether that's going to happen or not. And you can't no, tell me what what's the, the likelihood that he changes. I don't know, Margaret. I no, don't really? Know. You've I known really, him for 20 years. I has have. he changed in your 20 years? Sure he has. Sure he's changed So you in think he could years. change? I think every, look, I'm a Catholic who believes in redemption. And I think anybody can change if they decide they want to. You said in your last interview with me that you are not finished yet. I am not. Would you, would you, if Trump ran, would you, would you be willing to run against him? If I decided to run for president, I wouldn't care who the hell else is in the race. Not one bit. Does whether he runs or not influence what you do? Zero. Zero. And, and, and quite frankly, the people who say they're going to defer to him, I think that should be disqualifying for running at all. Um, I, like Tim Scott, who said if he runs, if Donald Trump runs, of course he would step out. I mean, I just look, I, and I like Tim a lot. I Senator think a, Scott. Senator I think Tim Senator Scott. Tim Scott's a great guy, and, and I like him a lot. The fact of the matter is, if you think you're the right person to be president, you're the right person to be president. And and if you go into it thinking, well, I'm the best person, but if this person runs, I'm not going to, let me guarantee you, you're not going to win if you run anyway. So you're better off not running. Um, it's hard. I've done it. And um, you've got to be completely committed to the idea that you are the right person. And if you are completely committed to that idea, you should be willing, excuse me, you should be willing to run against anyone. Doesn't matter. And so, you know, I, I think that going forward as a party, um, we should have serious people running for president and they should, they should be completely committed to the idea because when you get there, I suspect, and I felt this certainly as governor, and I suspect it's, it's monumentally larger when you're president. It's not going to get easier. It's going to get harder. That job is harder than running for president. And the decisions you have to make are much more monumental than any you'll make in a campaign. So you better be ready. If I decide I think I'm the best person to be president of the United States and I have the support of my family and I see a pathway to winning, then I run. If I don't see all three of those things, then I don't run. And when politicians say that, most people don't give them much credibility. But remember, in 2011, lots of Republicans were 
begging me to run. I didn't feel like I was ready to be president. Prong one. You ready now? Oh, I'm definitely ready now. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind that I'm in fact even more ready now than I was in 2016. I'm older, I'm smarter, and I've watched a lot. And I could tell you that from watching Donald Trump be president from the very close range that I watched it from, that I learned a great deal about what I would do if I were ever president and what I would never do if I were president. So yeah, I'm ready. I'm prepared. Doesn't mean I'm going to run, but it means that if I do run, that won't be the thing that will keep me from running. Chris Christie, thank you for returning to Firing Line. Thanks for having me, Margaret. 